take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. This is the New Year's session 2020. It is said the Buddha dispensed medicine in accord with the sickness. Many different teachings for many states of mind and heart. Different levels of aspiration. Different material being brought to the cushion. Different inclinations. Different bodies, different insights that either inform us or hinder us. And perhaps even different trajectories. I sometimes think of all the people I've met and made a connection with, and whether it's a brief connection or extending over years or decades, and I'm, I'm struck by the mystery of how their lives will unfold. Who will this person be in 20 or 30, 40, 50 years? Where are they going? And why do we go the ways that we go? On one level, we live with the same, we live within the same set of conditions. We're in this, this contemporary moment together where there's so much possibility and also peril. And there's uh, human rights, for example, are flourishing like they never have before. And at the same time, mass acres of forests are on fire. So we're living within these, these same set of conditions. We each have our own little microcosm within that, larger, within that larger field. And within these conditions, our path, our path unfolds. And each of us, we embody the human dance of birth and death. And we each are responding to it, responding or reacting to it from a singular perspective. It's kind of the same stuff, right? The same dance of, of human life. Um, but the, the interaction, what we bring to it and how we respond to what it brings is unique for each person. So all of us playing out our desire dance both interacting in that and at the same time totally alone. And we do this dance and there is the proposition that we play out our desire dance as sick people, as afflicted people. And if you don't like, think of yourself or others as sick or afflicted, troubled, Marked, at least marked for death. Perplexed, thirsty, seeking. And what are we sick with? What are we afflicted with? What are we thirsty for? What are we seeking? What, what's the, uh, what's the, the image or the wound that is motivating our particular desire dance. And we might think being 100% healthy is desirable. And maybe that's the direction that we, we dance in. But wouldn't such a condition be alienating? Wouldn't that make you more lonely if you were well, fully healed, without trouble? Wouldn't such a condition of being 100% healthy be unwhole? Wholeness is a, is a big deal in, in Western psychological tradition. Part of our, part of our inheritance is a, is a calling to wholeness. But if we were only well, would we then be whole? If we were 100% healthy, what would be the source of meaning in your life? Sometimes I think just how boring utopia would be. 
what would we do? What would be the motive for the dance? Uh, Vimalakirti, the, the layman of Mahayana legend, um, was sick. He was sick and lying on a couch. And uh, the Buddha knew about that and tried to get a bodhisattva to go visit layman Vimalakirti. But not many of them wanted to because Vimalakirti is kind of a badass in the Dharma. And that's part of the in-joke of this, this sutra, is that uh, it challenged the notion that the, so how, somehow um, monastics were the only people who could be enlightened or awake. And here's this uh, layman who was uh, so, so clear in his understanding that he frightened the Bodhisattva Manjushri. But he was sick. And so Manjushri finally went to see, see Vimalakirti. And he arrived and he said to him, Layman, this illness of yours, can you endure it? Is the treatment perhaps not making it worse rather than better? The world honored one countless times has made solicitous inquiries concerning you. Layman, what is the cause of this illness? Has it been with you long? And how can it be cured? He didn't like show up there and say, hey, everything's empty. Why don't you get back to work? No, he responded to a sick person. But he knows there's more to the story than meets the eye. Vimalakirti replied, this illness of mine is born of ignorance and feelings of attachment. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. If all living beings are relieved of sickness, then my sickness will be mended. Why? Because the Bodhisattva, for the sake of living beings, enters the realm of birth and death. And realm of birth and death, we sometimes call that samsara. The Bodhisattva, for the sake of living beings, enters the realm of birth and death. And because she is in the realm of birth and death, she suffers illness. If living beings can gain release from illness, then the bodhisattva will no longer be ill. It is like the case of a rich man who has only one child. If the child fall, falls ill, then the father and mother too will be ill. But if the child's illness is cured, the father and mother too will be cured. The bodhisattva is like this, for he loves living beings as though they were his children. If living beings are sick, the bodhisattva will be sick. But if living beings are cured, the bodhisattva too will be cured. You ask what cause this illness arises from. The illness of the bodhisattva arises from her great compassion. Manjushri said, this illness of yours, layman, what form does it take? My illness has no form, replied Vimalakirti. It cannot be seen. Now, as I'm always saying, when you hear teachings like these, the most important thing is to turn it back upon your own life and your own experience. What, if, it's, if it's an abstracted thing, remote from your nitty-gritty existing, it's not helpful. But this is not about something abstract. My illness has no form. It cannot be seen. What happens when you look directly at your anxiety, or your existential angst, or your self-consciousness. What happens when you look, when you, try, when you really attend directly to the part of you that's dissatisfied? Vimalakirti's conclusion is it cannot be seen. It has no form. So Manjushri said, is this illness seated in the body or in the mind? It is not seated in the body, for it is apart from bodily form, replied Vimalakirti. And it is not seated in the mind, for the mind is a phantom-like thing. Well, of the four major elements, earth, water, fire, air, and wind, to which of these elements does this illness pertain, asked Manjushri. 
Vimalakirti replied, this illness does not pertain to the element earth, but neither is it separated from the element earth. And the same may be said of the elements water, fire, and wind. Yet the illnesses of living beings arise from the four elements. And because living beings have these illnesses, therefore I too am ill. So one of the ways that the uh, body is uh, viewed by Buddhist practitioners is it's just the combination, the interaction of the five elements, or the four elements, earth, air, water, fire. And those of you who know something about Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine know that they really think elementally, that sickness arises from imbalance in the elements. The thing about experiencing the body elementally in Dharma is it takes the idea of the body being a thing or having a self away. So right now you have sensations of heat and pressure, movement. That's the body. That's the five elements, the four elements. Vimalakirti replied, yet the illnesses of living beings arise from the four elements. And because living beings have these illnesses, therefore I too am ill. Then Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, how should a bodhisattva go about comforting and instructing another bodhisattva who is ill? So if you are a deep practitioner and you encounter another deep practitioner, you are gonna, you're going to be a straight shooter. Right? You're not going to um, try to buffer the truth of suffering. You're not going to just wish someone healing, but a good Dharma friend wishes that we learn from our sicknesses, that we look into it, that we see it as an opportunity for awakening. Vimalakirti replied, Tell him about the impermanence of the body, but do not tell him to despise or turn away from the body. Tell him about the sufferings of the body, but do not tell him to strive for nirvana. Tell him that the body is without ego, but urge him to teach and guide living beings. That is, remind each other that selflessness, no abiding self, is the core of the Buddha's teaching. And yet, that doesn't mean we say, well, there's no self, I'm not going to help anybody. Tell him of the emptiness of the body, but do not tell him of its final extinction. Tell him to repent of former offenses, but do not tell him to consign them to the past. So one line of thinking is that whatever arises now is a real result of past causes. And so our sicknesses, uh, from this point of view, are a result of things that we have been involved in in the past. And maybe we can trace that causality, and maybe we can't. But it's intimate to us. And because it's intimate to us, Manjushri says, do not tell him to consign it to the past. The cause and the effect are somehow completely entangled, present. Tell him to use his own illness as a means of sympathizing with the illness of others for he should understand their sufferings throughout the countless kalpas of their past existence and should think how he can bring benefit to all living beings. So we let our, our struggles, our sickness, uh, open our mind into a universal perspective. It's personal and it's not personal. It's my sickness and yet, essentially it's not different than anyone else's sickness. Where does it come from? Tell him to recall the good fortune he has won through religious practice, to concentrate on a life of purity, and to not give way to gloom or worry. He should cultivate constant diligence, striving to become a king of physicians who can heal the ailments of the assembly. King of the physicians is an epithet for the Buddha. This is how a bodhisattva should comfort and instruct a bodhisattva who is ill so as to make him feel happy. So we encounter our particular manifestation of, of sickness. 
of affliction, of perplexity, of thirst. We're kind of skillfully stripped down to the essentials of our existence. Just eating, sleeping, walking, sitting, listening. And so this, this allows for a very intimate encounter with ourselves. Not flinching from the texturing of body-mind. Not flinching from the texturing of body-mind. I consider that the first stage when I begin a retreat, or even when I begin a sit, is the not flinching from what this is. What, is, what, what are the conditions to know them uh, directly and to relax the sense of escape? When we don't long for another condition, so when the desire to not experience what you are experiencing is absent, is that condition still restrictive? Is it still afflictive? When you do not want to separate from the skin bag here and now, as we sometimes chant. So the foundational thing is, is welcome. The spirit of welcome. And intensive zazen can be a widening of the welcome. In a sense, you either get bigger or you suffer. And there's some drive, I think, in all of us to not suffer. And so the work happens. And capacity to uh, experience, the spectrum of experience gets bigger, it widens. So openness to what is presenting. I think I emphasize this because it took me a long time to not think I needed some equilibrium or some particular condition of my body-mind to actually meditate. I thought meditation was after my body-mind was how I wanted it. But there's no absence of opportunity. There's no body-mind that is not the Dharma gate. And so we work on closing the gap. Closing the gap, resuming non-dividedness. What is the gap? What creates it? What creates it for you? Could be a part of myself that's afraid of physical pain. Could be a part of myself that's afraid of emotional pain. Frightened by the uh, direct encounter of a mood, or a direct immersion in a heartbreak, or a backache. The gap could be just reflexive programming to alleviate discomfort. Probably because that's basically biological. The nervous system instinctively wants to avoid discomfort. The very act of being awake is required to not do that. It takes a presence of mind to not enact the instinctual karma. Could be the apparent momentum of free-roaming, wandering mind. The gap is simply that we got a lot going on in our thinking, and it's enchanting. And so, in a way, we become uh, a mind head, top of a body, vaguely, vaguely occupied 
could be the gap, the avoidness, the to avoid the rawness of vulnerability. Could be ideas we incorporated about what meditation is supposed to be, what correct practice should feel or look like. And we incorporated them. They're not just, they've gone from, they've really been taken in and fully assimilated they're not so easy to uh, expose. But we, we have this gap between the actual and the ideal. And how do we expose the ideal? And the gap could simply be what we're working with as we initiate the healing of relaxing into our own skin. It's okay to be here as this person. It's it's more than okay. David White um, on vulnerability. Vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without, vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not, and most especially to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, in refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential, tidal, and conversational foundations of our identity. So this beautiful phrase, a conversational, that uh, David White uses, similar to interconnection, interbeing. To have a temporary, isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is a lovely, illusionary privilege and perhaps the prime and most beautiful, constructed conceit of being human, and especially of being youthfully human. But it is a privilege that must be surrendered with that same youth, with ill health, with accident, with the loss of loved ones who do not share our untouchable powers powers eventually and most emphatically given up as we approach our last breath. The only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. Our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, Inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, robustly and fully, or conversely as misers and complainers, reluctant and fearful, always at the gates of existence, but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, never walking fully through the door. the orientation of, of welcome and the closing of the gap between ourselves and ourselves. It's not preliminary. Foundational, not preliminary, not tertiary. Perhaps an unexpected beneficent consequence of activating the path. It's also not the whole story. Dogen Zenji has a text on Zazen called Zazen Shin. One of the interesting things is Dogen, as you know, is uh, 
passionate proponent of zazen. That we should do that a whole lot. And even though he felt that way, apparently, he wrote very few things about the practice itself. Maybe only three or four actual uh, essays directly related to how to practice Sazen. Of course, that's the context of all of his teaching, the state of mind. Zazen Shin, so Zazen is sitting Zen. And Shin means, um, has different meanings. In this case, it means point. A sharp point. And the translators say that the way Dogen was playing with language here is that this point is like an acupuncture needle. There's some similar or there's some relation to the character for an acupuncture needle and this sheen. So right away we have uh, the medicine of Zazen. But we also have exact. We have sharp. We have upright. Right in the title. So what I'm going to comment on is in the, the end, towards the end of this chapter. And we chanted earlier the guidepost for silent illumination by Master Hongzhi. And Dogen Zenji was very fond of, of Hongzhi. He would mention this teacher frequently. And his teacher would praise this teacher. And they tended to criticize a whole lot of teachers. And so says a lot, uh, the esteem. So this was a text on the practice of Zazen that Dogen felt of many, many texts on how to practice meditation in China. This one really hit the mark. You could think of it like if you were to go on Amazon right now and try to find a book on meditation and you didn't really know like what gave it authority well, perhaps the quality would widely vary. So this, in a way, is what Dogen is doing. He's trying to kind of sort out uh, what is high quality. He says, The point of Zazen, written by Zheng Jue, Zen Master Hongzhi of the Tiantong Jingdei Monastery, Mount Taibo, Qingyang Prefecture, China, alone is a work of a Buddha ancestor. It is a true point of Zazen with penetrating words. It is the only light that illuminates the inside and outside of the phenomenal world. It is Buddha ancestor among Buddha ancestors of past and present. Earlier Buddhas and later Buddhas have been led to Zazen by this teaching. Present Buddhas and past Buddhas are actualized by this point of Zazen. The text is as follows the hub of Buddha's activity, the turning of the ancestor's hub, is known free of forms, illuminated beyond conditions. As it is known free of forms, knowledge is subtle. As it is illuminated beyond conditions, illumination is wondrous. When knowledge is subtle, there is no thought of discrimination. When illumination is wondrous, there is not the slightest hint when there is no thought of discrimination, knowledge is extraordinary with no comparison. Where there is not the slightest hint, illumination has nothing to grasp. Water is clear to the bottom, where the fish swims without moving. The sky is vast and boundless, where the bird flies and disappears. He says, the point here presented is the manifestation of great function, the awesome presence beyond sound and form, bamboo knots and wood grains before the parents were born. It is joyously not slandering Buddha ancestors. That is, it's doing service to the depth of their insight. It's not avoiding the death of body and mind. That is, it's not just some intellectual food, but it is uh, a, good, a good poison for illusion. In this next line, I just do not get the metaphor. 
It is as extraordinary as having a head that is three feet tall and a neck that is two inches short. Maybe such people existed in China at the time. I don't know. He said, the hub of Buddha's activity. Now, uh, Dogen commented on Hongzhi's poem. And I roused the chutzpah to say something about Dogen's commentary on Hongzhi's poem. The hub of Buddha's activity. Dogen says, Buddhas do not fail to make Buddhas the hub. This hub is manifested. That is Zazen. So you could rephrase that as awakening does not fail to make awakening the hub or the core. Awakening does not fail to make awakening the hub. This hub is manifested. That is Zazen. So our Zazen, our functioning, need not be based or springing from our confusion or from our reactivity. There's a way in which we can meditate from the murkiness of our mind or from our confusion. And there's a way in which we can let our uh, effort flow from the place of completeness. Let our effort flow from intimacy. Next line, the turning of the ancestor's hub. One's master's words are incomparable. One's teacher's words are incomparable. This understanding is the basis of ancestors, of transmitting dharma and of transmitting the robe. So um, traditionally, when someone receives transmission in the Zen tradition, the teacher gives them a robe that belonged to them as a symbol of that. Turning heads and exchanging faces is the hub of Buddha's activity. Turning faces and exchanging heads is the turning of the ancestor's hub. So one's teacher's words are incomparable. So in the Soto lineage, the lifeblood of that lineage is teacher-to-student relational entanglement. Sometimes called warm hand to warm hand. And as you know, if you read Dogen even a little bit, he's often saying Zazen transmitted from person to person. And what is he emphasizing there? He's emphasizing that the transmission of the Dharma is relational. It's live experience being shared with lived experience and the um, resonance of that. So we recognize our dharma in another's dharma. We see our truth in another's truth. We recognize our dharma in our teacher's dharma, and they recognize it in us. And the communication that comes out of that interchange, I think, imprints the heart in a different way than something you read in a book. Communication, the teaching, whether that's a voice, a gesture, an argument. What comes out of that intimate entanglement perhaps touches us in a way that just the words off a page can't quite do. One's master's words are incomparable. Teacher and student see each other and they see themselves. Exchanging heads, Dogen said. Exchanging heads. You recognize and manifest your teacher's mind. And because you've done that, they recognize and manifest yours. The hub of Buddha's activity, the turning of the ancestor's hub, is known free of forms. Is known free of forms. Dogen Zenji says, this knowing is not, of course, conscious knowing. Conscious knowing is small. What's small about conscious knowing? 
conscious knowing created New York City, created biomedical engineering, created all the great works of art. Why, what's, what's small about conscious knowing? Small in comparison to what? He says, this knowing is not comprehension. It could be another word for that. This knowing is not understanding. Understanding is created. That means you didn't have it. You generated it through some effort. Necessarily, you will lose it. Comprehension is created. Thus, this knowing is free from forms. Being free of forms is this knowing. Don't regard it as all-inclusive awareness. Don't limit it to self-knowledge. Being free of forms is, and this is a, a famous phrase, when brightness comes, meet it with brightness. When darkness comes, meet it with darkness. So brightness is the world of distinctions. Everything is illuminated, so we clearly know this from that. And darkness is when discrimination relaxes and we recognize the common essence. When darkness comes, meet it with darkness. And another quote here he put in, sit through the skin you were born with. Sit through the skin you were born with. Being free of forms is this knowing. This, this knowing. We, we don't use the word knowing so much around here. Being free of forms is this uh, mode of experience. Being free of forms. Now, you can hear that and think, okay, I'm going to escape. I'm going to transcend. I'm going to become un uninvolved with the world. I'm going to become uninvolved with my body, my mind, the entanglement of my suffering. I'm going to lift out that, that transcendent impulse to kind of get out. Is that what Dogen is saying? Being free of forms is his knowing. Is the operating concept of freedom a non-involvement? Non-involvement has its place. Non-involvement has a medicine. But, is the operating concept of freedom a full involvement? Is it just being mired? In life, is it just a full acceptance of the human condition? As David White was saying, I mentioned uh, last night uh, one of the three terrible oaths. My favorite being, whatever happens, may it happen. Whatever happens, may it happen. And what can say that authentically? From where do those words arise? Whatever happens, may it happen. Dogen continues. So the hub of Buddha's activity, the turning of the ancestors' hub, is known free of forms, illuminated beyond conditions. Illuminated beyond conditions. He says, this illumination is not illuminating everything or illuminating with brilliance. Being beyond conditions is this illumination. Illumination does not change into conditions as conditions are already illumination. Illumination does not change into conditions. Conditions are already illumination. Beyond means the entire world is not hidden. A broken world does not appear. It is subtle and wondrous. It is interchangeable and beyond interchangeable. Illuminated beyond conditions. So brightness, illumination, is not something we stand apart from and observe. Just like our zazen is not something we stand apart from and observe. 
How do we relax into that kind of intimacy? Conditions are already illumination. Conditions are already illumination. What's another way to say that? This is already the manifestation of awakeness, of freedom. Doesn't that poison us? As soon as we say that, doesn't it doesn't actually put a buffer between us and genuine investigation? How do you verify that? Conditions are already illumination. How do you appreciate it? He says, the entire world is not hidden. A broken world does not appear. I've always loved that phrase. The entire world is not hidden. A broken world does not appear. Where is the rift, the gap in this moment? It's never philosophical, the invitations of Dogen. He's always talking about right here, right now, a broken world does not appear. Find the seams in experience. Find the moment when the rain sound meets the ear, contacts the ear. Broken world does not appear. Dogen is saying pain and pleasure are equally illuminated. Self and other equally illuminated, up and down equally illuminated. And yet, I prefer chocolate over vanilla. I prefer ease to stress. So what is the freedom of illumination? He continues, illuminated beyond conditions, When knowledge is subtle, there is no thought of discrimination. When knowledge is subtle, there is no thought of discrimination. Dogen says, thought as knowledge does not depend on other power. So this paragraph is packed with uh, juicy, potent pointing out. Thought as knowledge does not depend on other power. Knowledge is a shape, and a shape is mountains and rivers. Knowledge is a shape. A shape is mountains and rivers. But it's not just mountains and rivers. Mountains and rivers includes everything. The mountains and rivers are subtle. The subtle is wondrous. When you utilize it, it is lively. When you create a dragon, it is not limited inside or outside of the dragon gate. So in uh, Chinese and then in Japanese cosmology, a dragon is a, a creature of great freedom, a creature that is, is, can, can go anywhere without hindrance. He says, to utilize a bit of this knowledge is to know by bringing forth mountains and rivers of the entire world using all your force. This is going on when you brush your teeth. This is the feeling in your, in your belly right now. Don't think about some valleys and, and mountains in, in China somewhere. To utilize a bit of this knowledge is to know by bringing forth mountains and rivers of the entire world using all your force. If you don't have knowledge by being intimate with mountains and rivers, there is not a shred or scrap of knowledge. Do not grieve that discernment and discrimination come slowly. Buddhas who have already discerned are already being actualized. There is no thought of discrimination means there is already merging. There is already merging is actualization. Thus there is no thought of discrimination is not meeting even one person. There is no thought of discrimination. Knowledge is subtle.
for me, the um, training and over time experiences of bringing the mind to total stillness are very informative. There's some way in which um, the world is even subtly distorted or, or at a distance when we're involved in thought. But this is not about fixating in no thought. This is not about fixating on quiescence or thoughtlessness. It's called a remembering or a resuming of an intimacy that is not created. As he said, there is already merging is actualization. He's saying there's no gap right now between body and mind, ear and sound, self and other, mind and space. There, there just simply is not a seam or a gap. An effort to make that experience arise or come to you creates a gap. It seems to require a detachment from discrimination. Detachment from discrimination, not necessarily a quashing of it. I believe it's called the parietal frontal cortex. They do show that in uh, meditation and in some psychedelic states, this part of the brain that's associated with discrimination, the uh, activity of it greatly reduces. But to live, you have to choose chocolate over vanilla. You have to know good from bad. So. A detachment from discrimination, detachment from discriminating thought, a non-investment in mind's various degrees of naming and locating and referencing and seeking, a non-investment in it. They proclaim themselves. As Dogen said, thought as knowledge does not depend on other power simply recognize that they do so. It does not implicate a thinker. The arising of thought and the experiencing of thought are simultaneous. They're one. There's no abiding thinker beneath them. Thought as knowledge does not depend on other power. This is exactly why we can resume this freedom of non-discrimination or detaching from discrimination. We are not actually attached to it. It is not ours anyway. And yet we experience thought rising, falling. Dogen said, when you utilize this, it is lively. How much energy is freed up when we can move through the day or perhaps you can remember a time when your mind was just not all entangled in judgments of good and bad and self-consciousness and how much energy was there and how uh, the deep permission to be in your own skin and to fully exist. So the, the burdensome, the so often irrelevant analytics are just not capturing our attention. And everything goes smoother. And the deeper or more intimate place of response becomes available. How different relationships are when the other is not merely other. The next line of Ongier's poem, when illumination is wondrous, there is not the slightest hint when illumination is wondrous, there is not the slightest hint. He says, the slightest is the entire world. The illumination is naturally wondrous and luminous. 
naturally. The illumination that he's inviting us to appreciate is naturally wondrous and luminous. Thus, it looks as if it hadn't arrived. Do not doubt your eyes. Do not believe your ears. To directly clarify the source beyond words and not to grasp theories through words is illumination. This being so, illumination is not comparing, not grasping. To maintain illumination is extraordinary, and to accept it as complete, to accept it as complete is no other than investigating it thoroughly. When illumination is wondrous, there is not the slightest hint. Another translation says there's not the slightest sign. There's not uh, objective evidence. He says, thus it looks as if it hadn't arrived. And we hear the same point being brought up in the Genjo Koan. A fish swims in the ocean. There's no end to the water, no matter how far it swims has never left its element since the beginning. That's both um, the grace and the primal koan. If you've always been in a liberated condition, if you've always been the Buddha nature, then how would you recognize it? How would you appreciate it? Dogen says, to accept it as complete is no other than investigating it thoroughly. One of the things I really appreciate about Dogen Zenji is, um, first of all, I acknowledge that it's hard to hear Dogen Zenji in this kind of setting um, because I find I need to read and reread and interact with the text because he invites an investigation, and in fact, he's often saying that. Investigate this thoroughly. Look into this with your skin, flesh, bones, marrow. He, he was someone who encouraged great curiosity. To accept it as complete is no other than investigating it thoroughly. Putting the teachings to the test is how faith goes from the head to the gut. And we, in our own travails and sleepless nights, can testify to how much the teachings have gone from the head to the gut. He said, not comparing, not grasping is illumination. This being so, illumination is not comparing, not grasping. Flip that around as a direct practice instruction. So I'm encouraging us to be really clear on what our method of practice is. Do not be mistaken. As I said, the mind can be vague, but method is not vague. So be really clear what your method is, but know that the heart of it is not comparing, not grasping to thoroughly immerse in the moment of not comparing and not grasping. The proposition is that right there is illumination. Right there is illumination. Thoroughly immerse in not comparing, not grasping. Detached from comparing, detached from grasping. He said, do not doubt your eyes. It looks as if it hadn't arrived. Do not doubt your eyes. Do not believe your ears. Do not doubt your eyes. Don't invest unduly in the skepticism you hear inside and out. Illumination won't be proved or disproved by intellectual mastication. So 
So it's easy to talk glibly about Zen stuff, and it's very difficult to truly and continually live this without vacillation. Hongzhi continues, water is clear to the bottom where the fish swims without moving. And Dogen says, water hanging in the sky does not get to the bottom. What does that refer to? Water hanging in the sky does not get to the bottom. Furthermore, water that fills a vessel is not as clear as the water mentioned here. Water that is boundless is described as clear to the bottom. When the fish swims in this water, it goes for myriad miles. There is no way to measure it, and there is no shore to limit it. There is no sky for the fish to fly in and no bottom to get to. And there is no shore where someone sees the fish. In fact, there is no one who sees the fish. If you speak of recognizing the fish, there is merely water clear to the bottom. function of zazen is just like the fish swimming. Who can measure how many thousands and myriads of miles there are in zazen? Its journey is the entire body traveling the path where no bird flies. Water is clear to the bottom. Who can measure how many thousands of myriads of miles there are in zazen? Drawing from a bottomless well bathing in a boundless sky. In uh, appreciation of Hongzhi, Dogen wrote his own uh, point of Zazen. It's interesting, both the Zen tradition and the jazz lineage have this in common, that previous adepts are incorporated and appreciated by current adepts and in communication across time. So this is Dogen's text. The point of Zazen. The hub of Buddha's activity, the turning of the ancestor's hub, moves along with your non-thinking and is completed in the realm of non-merging. Non-thinking. Non-thinking. What is that? It's It's not the absence of thought. It moves along with your non-thinking. Could we say it's activated along with your non-thinking? It's realized, it's manifest along with your non-thinking. And it's completed in the realm of non-merging. As it moves along with your non-thinking, its emergence is immediate. As it is completed in the realm of non-merging, completeness itself is realization. When its emergence is intimate, there is no separateness. When completeness reveals itself, it is neither real nor apparent. Real nor apparent, um, you could substitute, it is neither absolute nor relative, it is neither emptiness nor form. When completeness reveals itself, it is neither real nor apparent. It doesn't fall on either side. When there is immediacy without separateness, immediacy is dropping away with no obstacle. Realization, beyond real or apparent, is effort without desire. Now that's a useful line. Realization is effort without desire. Where does effort source from if it's not fueled by desire? clear water all the way to the ground, a fish swims like a fish. Again, he's articulating the state of mind of Zazen. Clear water all the way to the ground, a fish swims like a fish. Vast sky transparent throughout, a bird flies like a bird. And he says, although Zengzhui's text is not incomplete, Zazen may be spoken of in this way. All descendants of Buddha ancestors should practice Zazen as the single great matter. It is the authentic seal transmitted from person to person. So we have this brief but, but precious 
opportunity to do this welcoming, this making intimate, this steadfast engagement with our method. And this is potent medicine for the ancient sicknesses of the heart, estrangement, unbelonging, suffocation of rigid identities, life lived in partial presence, life lived in devotion to futures that are largely beyond our control. So please trust this this acupuncture needle of Zazen. It's, It's exactly your life. Exactly your life. Thank you.